Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9. We've been working our way through Daniel. You'll find it after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Daniel 9, we said last week, can really be divided into two halves. Uh, Last week we looked at Daniel's prayer, and tonight we see God's answer to Daniel's prayer. So we're at Daniel 9, verses 20 to 27, God and the God who answers prayer. We invite you to consider this passage with me tonight. Hear now the authoritative and inspired word of God. While I was speaking and praying, this is Daniel, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight. At the time of the evening sacrifice, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. And shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Amen. This is God's word. May he teach it to us. Let's pray together. Father, In heaven, we would ask for your blessing tonight and that you would be our teacher and our guide. I pray that you would help us to understand wonderful things in your word. Lift high Jesus before our eyes and grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts 
would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In a Peanuts cartoon, Linus is interpreting a nursery rhyme. He tells Charlie Brown, the way I see it, the cow jumped over the moon indicates a rise in farm prices. Linus asks if Charlie agrees. Charlie confesses. I can't say. I don't pretend to be a student of prophetic literature. You might feel that way about Daniel's 70 weeks. What is all this history and math about? Well, it's an answer to prayer. It's the the weeks and that are in a, a second part of an answer to prayer. Daniel had actually been praying about two things. His and his people's sins, and God's holy hill and its worship, its restoration. And God gives him a two-part answer to that prayer. In verse 20, it kind of sums up verses 1 to 19, which I was very tempted to read, where Daniel confesses his own sins and the sins of the people. You remember this from last week. He tells you he'd been praying, confessing their sins. He'd been talking about how they had done wrong, how they had not measured up, uh, how they had fallen short of the glory of God. He, he talks about how they had turned a deaf ear to God's prophets. They hadn't listened. They'd rebelled and turned their back to the Lord. And, and so exile had come. Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed and they were suffering. And, and Daniel says, you were right to bring this on, it, on us. You said you would do so, but forgive us, Lord. Please have mercy upon us. Just as you promised this exile, so you promised restoration and forgiveness. So he calls out for that. So that's, that's the first prayer. Then the second thing he was praying for, you'll see it again at verse 20. He tells you, was he was making a plea for the holy hill of my God. He wants to see Jerusalem rebuilt, the temple rebuilt, and the temple sacrifices and worship restored so that the people of God can gather around God and enjoy what he had had given to them, the sacrificial system and all its benefits. So that's what's on the heart of this godly man as he weeps for his people and his people's rebellion, and as he weeps uh, for the honor of God for the sake of his worship and his name. Uh, These are the two things that were on his heart. And let me just pause there and say, do we carry any of the same concerns in our own heart? Uh, Do we grieve over uh, transgressions of God's law, falling short of God's glory, Do we grieve over hard-heartedness in hearing his word? Do we ever grieve over our sins or one another's sins? And do we so care for the worship of God? And granted, Christians don't worship at, nor do they aspire to worship at an altar in a temple in Jerusalem. We have a better altar at the feet of Jesus, not a temple made of stone, but Jesus himself, who is the very temple of God, the place where God and man Do we ever, at the feet of Jesus, at the cross of Christ, have a concern for, in our prayers, the honor of God in his worship? 
and the well-being of God's people as we gather around uh, the, the true temple, Jesus. Uh, those are Daniel's two concerns, and we might ask, we might ask uh, even, Lord, put those concerns on my heart. They're godly concerns. Notice God's concern to give him an answer to those two prayers. And that's where we want to spend our time, the two parts of the text. God gives him both affirmation and he gives him a revelation. In verses 20 to 23, God, in response to his confessing sins, God affirms his love for him. And in response to his concern for the worship of God, in verses 24 to 27, God says, God gives him a revelation of God's plan for the restoration of these things. Uh, so we want to look at this two-part answer tonight. Look with me in the passage then at the first answer, verses 20 to 23. This affirmation that Daniel receives, it's an affirmation that God heard him, God is answering him, and that God loves him. This is exactly what he needed to hear as he mourns over and weeps over his sins before God. So the angel Gabriel, it says, comes, appears to him in swift flight. I know it says man, that's the appearance a form that the angel took, and he tells him at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you. In other words, he's saying, Daniel, God heard you when you were talking to him. Just pause there. How wonderful it is to have received this affirmation, to not have been left in doubt. God wants Daniel to know, I've listened to you. Now listen, when we pray, I know it doesn't feel sometimes like he's listening. And I don't expect that we have visions of angels in the form of man telling us that God is listening. And unfortunately, we can be people when we pray who don't think that God gives a rip. Sometimes, sadly, we learn that from our own fathers. Uh, we say something to them and they grunt. <laughs> We speak to them and they don't look up from their computer to talk to us. I know a dad like that. My children do too. And maybe we've said, dad, did you hear what I said? Dad, are you listening? Do you care at all what I'm talking about? Maybe we feel that way about God. But, but God would have us know that he is listening. And, and the New Testament tries to make this abundantly clear to us when it says things like, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Or when in Hebrews chapter 4, it says that we should come boldly, confidently before the throne of grace. We don't have to come hesitantly. We don't have to sneak our way in. We don't have to be timid. Come boldly before the throne of grace in order to receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. But why would you come boldly? Because Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. In other words, he bridges, so to speak, heaven and earth. And he bears us on his heart into the very throne room of God itself. God says, I'm listening to you. Come to me. Uh, I hear you. That's the first thing. And Daniel gets this rather extraordinary affirmation of that. And, and not only that God listened, but that God is answering him. Gabriel says, since you began your prayer, God's word went out. God answered your prayer. 
and, and I could say to us as a pastor, I truly wish uh, that, that we would get an answer like that, but uh, not all God's answers are that way. Some are, but sometimes the answer is, no, my child, that thing you asked for isn't good for you, and I am wiser uh, than you know, and I love you more than you think I do. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is yes, and I'll give that to you now. And sometimes the answer is yes, but not yet. You need to wait a while. Patience, my child. Uh, but I do want to say this. All our longings in accordance with God's will, though maybe not realized here and now immediately, all those longings are fulfilled better than expected when Jesus comes. You have never prayed, God, your kingdom come and your will be done and, and not have that answered positively, not necessarily immediately and today. But God's kingdom is coming in all its full glory and God's will shall be done upon the earth just exactly as he desires by all his people. And so, uh, while we may not get the exact same kind of answer Daniel did, we do know God hears that God does answer prayer. And Daniel got an extraordinary answer. The angel said, even as you were praying at Daniel, a word went out to do what you asked. So it's an extraordinary affirmation there. But I, but I think most wonderfully, as, as amazing as that is, most wonderfully is this little brief, you might say throwaway line, because the story could go on without it being stated. Oh, Daniel, you who are what? Greatly loved or highly esteemed. End of verse 23. Uh, in, in answer to his, his confessing his sin and mourning, weeping, God comforts him. It's, it's as if to say, uh, you know, God, do you accept me and forgive me? Please let me hear from you. And God says, I do forgive you. I do accept you. I love you, Daniel. And he gets a verbal affirmation of that. Um, Daniel is saying uh, in his confession, my love to you has been unfaithful. That's what he's admitting. And God says, but my love to you is unfaltering. And that's what he hears. You are precious to me, my son. Uh, you are precious to me. And, and I want to say, think about how important that kind of affirmation is. I mean, just between us, uh, when, when you know you've offended someone and you ask them for forgiveness, your conscience wants to know that they really forgive you. That's where the enjoyment in the relationship is to be found when peace is established and settled between you, when they're not holding it against you, Right? Uh, if, if I break the enjoyment of our relationship by hurting you, if I disturb the peace by offending you, part of reconciliation is my asking you to forgive me and you saying I forgive you so that I can receive forgiveness. Uh, God, likewise, is in relationship with us and he doesn't want to leave us in any doubt. If, if we're in doubt, if Daniel was in doubt, we might be like Adam and Eve in the garden. And what did they do after they sinned? 
in shame, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and they hid themselves behind the trees. They didn't want to be near God. They feared his voice. They wanted to hide. They wanted to blame. They didn't want to be honest. They didn't want anything to do with their father in heaven. And God very graciously said, do you know where you are? Do you know what you've done? Come to me. We'll talk this out. And I'm going to provide a redeemer for you. That's the promise of Genesis 3.15. In other words, there can be gracious forgiveness here. God loves to graciously forgive and to assure us of it. Let me speak to Christians for a minute. Christians say they believe in forgiveness, and yet I find Christians easily forget they're forgiven or have a hard time believing they still are. Uh, Christians, if you know your Bible, have you ever been reading it at Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And you think to yourself, now why is he repeating himself? Because at Romans 3, he talked about Jesus and forgiveness. Romans 4, he did so. Romans 5, verse 1, he said, we have been justified. We have peace with God. We've been forgiven. Why say it all in 3, 4, and 5, and then at 8, repeat yourself? The reason is he just slogged you through Romans 6 and 7 which is all about sin and unrighteousness and our lack of holiness. It's all about how uh, the good I want to do, I do not do. And the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. You know, and you could, you could drive yourself insane as a Christian if all you thought about was your progress as a believer because we're all so slow in our progress. And so God comes right back after talking about how he forgives us and then talking about our sin and him changing us, he comes right back at Romans 8.1 and says, now don't forget this. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, I think we've, we, we need to hear that again and again as part of our liturgy and our service. You notice that we, we do corporately confess our sins together and we always have a, a note about the promise of the gospel and assurance from God that he does delight to pardon our iniquity. We need to hear that if we're going to enjoy him in relationship. But let me say a word to non-Christians. How may you know that, that you can have a gracious and forgiving uh, God who loves you? How can you know that? Do you have to wait for an angel like Gabriel to come down from heaven to speak to you? You do not need that. And you need not be left in doubt that you can know this God. Why? Because we have something better. Let me put it that way provocatively, but not irreverently. We have something better than the periodic or once-in-a-lifetime appearance of an angel. We have the once-and-for-all established cross of Christ. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved the ungodly. He reconciles friends or enemies to himself at the cross. If you want to know if God will have you, repent from your sin, believe in Jesus, look to Jesus, come to God through Jesus, and you may have certainty from God and assurance. And this assurance is, uh, is, is so important for our spiritual health. Uh, we need to come back to it again and again. In, uh, in 1751, Philip Doddridge, uh, pastor, was nearing the end of his life and his ministry. 
He was only 49 years old, but he was dying of tuberculosis, and physicians in that day in England uh, would have counseled uh, traveling to Spain or Italy, get south, get where it's warmer for your own health, and uh, he had limited resources, but the Countess of Huntington, Selena, uh, provided for he and his wife to travel. First, she had them come by and visit her so that they could share the enjoyment of fellowship, and then she was going to send them on their way. Well, the morning uh, they were due to depart, she went in to Doddridge's room and uh, unexpectedly uh, appearing there, discovered him to be weeping over the scriptures, scriptures which were opened before him. Uh, the words that moved him to tears were from Daniel, Oh, Daniel, a man greatly beloved. Selena could only say, you are in tears, sir. And he assured her, I am weeping, but they are tears of comfort and joy. Why? Because of the assurance God gives to his confessing people. And that assurance can belong to you as well. That's the first thing. He gets this affirmation of being well-loved and being heard and answered. The second thing he get is, gets is revelation. You see that in verses 24 through 27. Revelation. Let me say two big things about this. One, about how unclear it is, even to us. And then secondly, let me take a stab at what I think the meaning of it is. And you heard me correctly. Uh, number one, this is a difficult text. 70 weeks, 7 weeks, 62 weeks, 1 week, a half a week. There's a lot of history and math going on here, as we said. All of this will be in the future for Daniel. The question for us is, is all of it in the past for us, or some or all of it in the future for us? Does it refer to the time of the first coming of Jesus, or the time of the second coming of Jesus, or some combination of these things? I take great comfort in this. The early church father, Jerome, in the 400s, in explaining this passage, simply noted nine conflicting interpretations given by nine distinguished scholarly godly Christians that preceded him in the first 400 years of the church that all disagreed with one another. And then he simply said, I don't know my position. Let the reader decide, you know, and think it through based on nine different versions. Calvin in his commentary has Nine lectures on this text, uh, you know, encompassing over 100 pages. Um, this is a hard one, folks. On some views, let me just give you some, some of the issues involved here. On some views of the text, Jesus is the anointed one who atones for sin. Almost everybody sees it that way. Hard to miss that one. He's also in this, in, in, in some views, he's the one who is cut off. And he's the one who makes a covenant with many. And it's his people, the Jews, who rejected him, who bring destruction on the temple in Jerusalem on account of their unbelief. Just as in Daniel's day, the Jews of Daniel's days brought destruction upon Israel and the temple by their rejection of God and unbelief. Uh, and in some views, Christ crucified by the Jews is the abomination of desolation. 
In other words, it was an abomination that they should crucify the innocent son of God. And that brought desolation. I'm just scratching the surface here, people. Uh, But other views say this. No, Jesus, yes, is the anointed one who atones for sin. But Cyrus the Persian or Darius, or Artaxerxes, or some prince uh, under whom the city is built. Uh, He is the one who's cut off, or some Roman leader in Jesus' day is the one who is cut off. And the temple isn't destroyed by the Jews, and that's not what this text means by their unbelief, but destroyed as we know physically by the Romans in AD 70 under a prince Tacitus, um, or Titus, who sacked Jerusalem, And some will say committed an abomination in the temple and therefore it was destroyed. And then he was destroyed. The one who commits desolation uh, will himself be desolated. Okay. The most contradictory idea is this. The one making the covenant, some will say, is not Christ, but the Antichrist. (laughs) Francis Schaeffer wrote a book. How then shall we live? And I want to title this sermon, What then shall we preach? (laughs) It's not as clear as we might wish it was. And what does that mean? Well, one of the things it means is this. If you're watching TV and you turn on religious broadcasting, which I almost invariably uh, suggest you don't do, uh, and you hear the preacher say, what is perfectly clear about Daniel's 70-week prophecy is this. (laughs) Well, then you know he hasn't read the text carefully. (laughs) Not every detail is clear to anyone but God alone, though it may be in their own mind very clear. I'm I'm sympathetic uh, to Jay Bruce and find great comfort uh, in this. Jay tells the story on himself, and I have permission to tell this story, but, but he'd been in a church where they encouraged people at a time of of corporate prayer, to uh, read a a short passage of the Bible and make their prayer based on that passage. So he read a passage of Scripture and then prayed about uh, Christ being exalted in God's temple and all these great things about Jesus, so he thought. And then he came later to discover that the text itself was talking about the Antichrist who exalts himself in God's temple. Uh, now very well intentioned prayer and I'm sure nothing he said about Jesus being exalted was wrong to defend him for a moment but some prophetic texts will leave you wondering who are we talking about here Uh, do we ascribe to Jesus what belongs to some government leaders or even the antichrist Or do we ascribe to some government leaders or the Antichrist what properly belongs to Jesus? Uh, And there are lots of equally difficult passages in the New Testament that bear or maybe maybe bear or maybe don't bear on this text. And so uh, one more word just about the clarity of the passage. Um, This is why I really appreciate the words of one of my old seminary professors who, when he was asked about his views of the end times... Uh, And there was a time in his life where he used to sort of chart out, you know, every how many years and weeks and all the things that were going to happen before the return of Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. 
And, uh, and he was so certain of those things for so long, and then he became sort of uncertain that he got all the Bible properly interpreted for that scheme. He said he, said he left that view, and, and he left the planning committee and had joined the welcoming committee. Uh, I, I can't plan the party for you tonight about the return of Jesus, but I do want to say let's all be on the welcoming committee when he returns. Now, what about the meaning of the text? Stop avoiding it, Pastor. Okay. <laughs> Daniel here, it's, I think it's wonderful that, that at the time of the evening sacrifice, this is when Daniel is praying, he gets a message. Now listen, the evening sacrifice hasn't happened in Daniel's lifetime, at least since he was a teenager. And he's an old man. But he's still marking time in his day by when the Jews would have offered sacrifices. It's like it's, it's just ingrained on his heart. We need a substitute for ourselves that God has provided. And we come to God uh, on account of that substitute. And it's sweet then that he gets a vision of the fulfillment of that very idea. Uh, but, it's, but it's a bigger picture than, than he might have asked for. He was looking for the reestablishment of the temple sacrifices. And God says, listen, that's not the goal. That's going to come and that's going to go. Uh, The final goal is atonement for sin by the Messiah around whom we gather. Um, Let me take my stab at at trying to um, at least outline what I think this text is teaching. Uh, There are, I think, three cycles to the text. In verses 24 through 25, we hear about Jesus and Jerusalem, and then a word about the times, the troubled times. Then at verse 26, we hear, I think, again about Jesus and the temple. And then we hear about the times there's going to be wars. And then at verse 27, I think we hear again about Jesus and the sacrifices. And a note about the end time. Uh, Look at this with me. Verses 24 through 25. First, we hear about Jesus. One is coming... uh, who will finish the transgression, six things, put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. I think we can lump all those together around the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Uh, He put a stop um, uh, on the cross. He drew a line in the sand. Uh, he, he stopped falling short of the glory of God in humanity, either by himself never falling short of the glory of God and not perpetuating sin in humanity, not perpetuating transgression in humanity. That's one way to look at it. Or he put an end to all the sacrifices needed to atone for them by his one offering up of himself to atone for these things. Uh, and then, uh, then we see... Um, not only these three things, uh, but that he came to bring in everlasting righteousness. One of the beautiful things that we get in Christ is not just pardon for sin and it's wiped away, but we get credited with the perfect righteousness of Jesus and it's added to our account. It's uh, imputed, it's uh, accounted, it's credited to our account, so that you don't just get forgiven, and then you know from then on you sort of have to work out really hard building up your righteousness by your righteous deeds. 
But you are already as righteous as you will ever be before God's face in union with Jesus who is all your righteousness. And you are accepted as 100% righteous, as righteous as Jesus. Now, will God make you what he declares you to be? Yes. Will God actually in your experience do what he says about you? Absolutely. But everlasting righteousness, at least in principle and in the reality of, of it credited to us in union with Jesus, it's ours. And it lasts forever. I think that's what that's saying. And he came to a seal up vision and prophets, I'm not entirely sure, uh, to authenticate them or to fulfill them, and to anoint a most holy. Your text may say place or thing or person. It's a little uncertain. It just says to anoint a most holy. Does he mean he's going to anoint a most holy place, a temple, or is he going to anoint a most holy person, he himself, the anointed one, being anointed on our behalf? It's all, uh, it's, I think it's that, but, but that's about Jesus. And then it says, Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Uh, the city will be built again. There'll be squares, there'll be streets, there'll be moat, there'll be a, a wall around the city. Uh, and so Jerusalem's gonna, going to rise from the ashes, but notice it will be in troubled times, end of verse 25. In a troubled time. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and its walls, you know that they lived not in peace, but in troubled times and great distress. Then at verse 26, I think you get another cycle of Jesus, but this time the temple, and this time a word about the times. So we hear that there is an anointed one who will be cut off and have nothing. I think that's Jesus here. As upon the cross, his disciples fled from him, He was left with no one. He had no possessions to hold on to. And the father, as it were, turned his back upon his son. And so he cried out, why have you forsaken me? Uh, He was cursed in our place and cut off. And it says the temple will be destroyed. Uh, This sanctuary that was rebuilt And the city, well, it shall be destroyed. And historically, in AD 70, Rome came in and rampaged, and Jerusalem got knocked around, and the temple got ruined. Uh, And wars are decreed until the end, a reference again, and which Jesus, I think, himself picks up on this language when he talks about, you will hear of wars and rumors of war, but the end is not yet. Uh, And so I think that's the cycle there. And then at verse 27, once again, I I think we have Jesus and now the sacrifices. That I taking it to be Jesus is the one who will make a covenant with many. Uh, Covenant with many. This was some of his favorite language. At the Lord's Supper, he talked about this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And he binds himself in a relationship with to his people, not all, but the many, his church. And it says uh, sacrifices will, uh, will be ended. Uh, he puts an end to them. Uh, and taking it this way, he does in the one final sacrifice of himself. Uh, so that the sacrifices themselves find their fulfillment in his great one. And then there will be an abomination, it says, so a word about the times. We've had 
We've had troubled times. We've had war. There's going to be an abomination that causes desolation. And that may be the abuse of its temple before its destruction by the Romans. But I'm not certain. And you ask me, okay, so, so what? Well, Daniel wants, here's some of the so what. Daniel wants restoration to what was in Israel and to what Israel was. And God says, my plans are much bigger than that. My plans are about Jesus. And I will gather people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation again. Uh, before me and around and in and through Jesus. And so we can say, fear not, your Savior has come. He was cut off that you might be included. He took your sin and he gives you his righteousness. He decreed the destruction of the temple of stone, having established himself as the true temple where God and believers meet. And every promise of God is yes and amen fulfilled in Jesus. And all who belong to Jesus may know that they are deeply loved and precious to God, just as Daniel was. Let's pray. Father in heaven, bless you for the goodness of the gospel, the greatness and glory of Christ. And we pray that you'd make us a joyful people in what we have in him. We pray in his name. Amen.